Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. My guest today is Carl Robichaud. Carl is the first person I go to on the topic of nuclear weapons. He's been working as a grantmaker and analyst of nuclear weapons policy for close to two decades. He co-leads nuclear security grant making at Longview Philanthropy, where I used to work as a media consultant. Prior to Longview, Carl led nuclear grant making for the Carnegie Corporation of New York. I recently watched the film Oppenheimer with Carl um, and thought of doing an episode talking about the film and nuclear weapons more broadly. Uh, and we rushed to get an episode out uh, specifically this weekend because this is being released on the 78th anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing. As we discussed, the fact that nuclear weapons have not been used in war in the nearly eight decades since should be either seen as a remarkable achievement or a sign of extreme luck. Since the end of the Cold War, uh, nuclear weapons have largely faded from the public consciousness, but uh, that doesn't mean we're free from the threat of them. In the 1980s, there was this massive anti-nuclear movement that was quite successful at pressuring politicians, but now there's very little discussion, even though there are still nearly 10,000 nuclear warheads left in the world. Things seem quite bad at the moment, with Putin threatening to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine and the United States and China investing huge sums in their nuclear arsenals. But they were so much worse in the past, as we discussed in this episode, which gives some small consolation. And thanks to the concerted efforts of disarmament, there are 80% fewer nukes now than there were at the height of the Cold War. But again, there are still nearly 10,000 left. I'm hopeful that the film Oppenheimer will revitalize interest in nukes and motivate a new generation of activists, policymakers, and researchers to continue the unfinished work of disarming the gun pointed at the head of the world. Um, living with nuclear weapons is uniquely terrifying because you just have this knowledge that you could be killed in an instant based on the decision of maybe just one person. We talk about all this and more along with ways to get us out of this mess uh, in this episode. We have a spoiler-filled discussion of Oppenheimer the film and Oppenheimer the person up until about 31 minutes, 12 seconds into the episode. So let's get into it. Here is Carl Robichaud. Carl, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk. Yeah, this is the first in-person interview I've done since before the pandemic. Um, and so it's nice to be back and looking at somebody face-to-face. -face. Yeah. Thank you for letting me into your home. It's it's beautiful. Um, and so, yeah, last week we watched Oppenheimer um, in theaters and with a group of people. Um, what did you think of the film? So when I saw it with you, it was actually my second time seeing the film. And I found it incredibly moving. There were scenes from that movie that are just going to stay with me for a very long time. And I really appreciate the effort of the film to get the history right. It's really a movie that takes its source material seriously. Yeah. And it's based on this book, American Prometheus, which I've read. And it's a great book. I recommend it to everyone. But it's over 700 pages. And if you watch the movie, you will see quotes and snippets and moments that are drawn directly from the book. And it draws heavily on archival material and is pretty faithful to the history. So I really appreciated that as someone who cares about the, the facts of the story. Of course, the book is 27 hours if you yeah. listen to it, and it's compressed into a three-hour movie. So Nolan has to use some Hollywood tricks to get it down. But the story that it's telling is such an important one and one that's completely relevant today as we move into this new nuclear age. 
And you can see the things that Oppenheimer feared have started to materialize. And we live in a world that is indelibly shaped by that decision to test and use those first nuclear weapons. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a remarkable film. And I also usually come away from like biopics or historical films with like, all right, what are all the inconsistencies and accuracies? And uh, I, I haven't gone as deep on this one with like what the movie gets wrong, but it it didn't frustrate me the way a lot of historical films do, um, where it'll just make make things up or yeah, meaningfully change history. Yeah. So if you're going into the theater to see this film, I think you can feel confident that it's making a really good effort to get it right. Yeah. Yeah. And especially films about American history made by uh, Hollywood, there's often just a kind of whitewashing of mm-hmm. the United States' role. Um, and this movie was much more cynical on American power and the American dream than like almost any historically based film I, I've seen. Um, I don't know if you felt yeah, similarly. You can see that in the way that Oppenheimer himself is tormented by the decisions, yeah. as well as some of the other scientists that are portrayed in the film, like I.I. Robbie. Um, and you have also uh, uh, Zillard and uh, Fermi, who are shown circulating a petition of concern. And it's Oppenheimer confronting the implications of this project that he's worked on. There's this great scene in which he and Edward Teller are watching as the trucks laden with the bombs that they've worked for months and years to build head off into the distance. And it's like, now they're no longer in charge. Yeah. As the Air Force officer says, we'll take it from here. Right, right. Yeah, no, it, it is remarkable. And and uh, something I read in preparation for this um, made it clear that once they, the decision was made to develop atomic bombs um, during the war, there was no question as to whether they would be used. Um, there was just like a political inexorably marching forward process uh, where if we had spent $2 billion um, and a lot of effort with the most talented minds in, in the country on this project and then they didn't work or we never use them, there'd be investigations, like unending investigations in, into what happened here. Um, and that really just got me thinking about, I don't know, the American military budget and how like the same has uh, been true for developing nuclear weapons now where we have as many targets as there are nukes basically. And we just yeah. make n- more nukes and then come up with more targets. Um, and it kind of is like the self-justifying thing. Well, the decisions about how we prepare to use these weapons, uh, it's driven by strategy, but it's also driven by bureaucratic politics and domestic politics. Yeah, And that shapes a lot of what's possible in this space. Yeah. And, and in the movie, there, there's a very short discussion of whether the bombs would be used and where where they would be used, how they'd be used, um, which you mentioned in the uh, speech you gave before the film was just pretty accurate to how uh, it happened in, in real life, right? So those deliberations are compressed. In fact, they took place over the course of several months. There was an interim committee that was formed to help decide how the bomb would be used, and there were scientific advisors to that committee. But the primary decision makers were Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, and Leslie Groves, the general who is depicted by Matt Damon, who led the Manhattan Project. And he has essentially delegated the, the, the choice of targets. And so there was a handful of Japanese cities that were, um, they decided they would target these cities. And they were seeking to find targets that had been largely untouched by the conventional bombing right. because they wanted something that could demonstrate the power of these new weapons in order to force a Japanese surrender. Yeah. 
And there was some consideration of giving a demonstration effect, either blowing up Tokyo Harbor or perhaps inviting Japanese observers to that initial Trinity test. But these ideas were dismissed uh, pretty quickly, in part because w- there was a fear, what if it didn't go off? Mm-hmm. Or what if the results of the bomb were not apparent? Yeah. They actually didn't know what the yield and effect would be of that first bomb. And so they chose Hiroshima as a target. They said it was um, a military facility surrounded by worker housing, mm. was the way it was described. Uh, in fact, it was dropped pretty far from the military base. They considered perhaps alerting the civilian population or alerting the Japanese authorities and preparing them an ultimatum, but they felt that would put the bombers at risk because they could be shot down if the Japanese knew they were coming. So in the end, the decision was made and passed off to the military that they would hit these four targets, two of these four targets, depending on what the weather and military conditions were like. And it was left in the hands of the military commandos to decide that. So according to some estimates, uh, Truman didn't even know when Nagasaki would happen. It wasn't like he had to reauthorize use of the bomb after Hiroshima. Mm. They had two bombs and they were planning to use two bombs. Right, right. And I read something that uh, argued that these bombs were not seen as substitutes for conventional weapons, but more complements to them. Yes. So the this was in a pre-nuclear age, and it was at a time when we were already firebombing Japanese cities. Right. So tens of thousands dead, sometimes in a single day. Yeah in Tokyo and in other Japanese cities. Yeah. So they, we had gone down the slippery slope towards a, a barbaric pra- practice of war. Uh, the U.S. didn't start it, but was was part of this. Right. And so the, the decision was not one of whether to bomb or to invade, as it was later framed. They planned to bomb and invade. Mm. And if Japan didn't surrender, they would have continued dropping bombs, I think. Um, and they had a, a, an invasion scheduled for October, this uh, um, Operation Olympic that would have landed in the Southern Islands and then would have been followed up with a, a, an invasion of the main, Japanese mainland. And it was estimated to uh, the, the median estimates were about 100,000 U.S. deaths, which was massive. Yeah. Um, and they wanted to avoid that, understandably. Yeah. So they looked at their options. And from a series of very bad options, they chose the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. And and this is often, you know, I in my AP US history class in high school, we had a debate about whether it was justified to, to use the atomic weapons on, on Japan. And uh, there seemed to be like a lot of confusion about what was actually true, what the available options were, and, and what people expected at the time. Some people say like Japan was going to sue for peace anyway. Some people were like, oh no, they would never have surrendered. Uh, do you have like a, a view, all things considered? I think Japan had essentially lost the war yeah. and they knew that, but there was a military faction within Japan that did not want to surrender and that wanted to continue fighting in order to try to create losses on the part of the American invading forces in order to negotiate a better peace. Right. And they were prepared to go. Now, the civilian leadership in Japan had a different view, and they were ready to accept surrender under certain conditions. But uh, Roosevelt had already stated that we will only accept unconditional surrender. And because of that, 
Truman was to continue that policy and demand an unconditional surrender. Uh, the irony is that even after the, bo- the, the dropping of the two atomic bombs, Truman accepted a version of conditional surrender in which the Japanese emperor was left as the nominal head of state. And so what did those bombings actually buy us? It's not clear. Yeah. But it's hard to do these counterfactuals because you have the other key actor, which is the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. is deciding whether or not to enter the war. And once they learn of the atomic bomb, they accelerate the pace at which they're prepared to enter the war. Mm. And once the Soviet Union enters the war, the jig is really up for Japan. There's no way they can hold out against both the Soviet Union and the United States. But it probably would have been very bloody and costly. Ultimately, there's no way to know. Um, One of the great tragedies of history is that the first bomb was used against Hiroshima, and three days later, the second bomb was used against Nagasaki. And there was no way for the Japanese authorities to even make sense of what had happened in Hiroshima before they were hit with this second bomb. Right. So even if you believe that the first use in Hiroshima was justified, the second use in Nagasaki, which killed over 700,000 people, I think up to 100,000 people, most of them civilians. Sorry, 70,000 and then 100,000. Yeah. I, yeah. I think 70,000 in Nagasaki, mm-hmm. although there were continued health effects that may have killed many more. Yeah. So that second use of nuclear weapons perhaps could have been avoided um, if... Japan had had more time to process what had happened in Hiroshima and understood that the Soviet Union was about to enter the war. Right. We'll never know. Right. I, I read that uh, the emperor actually sued for peace or offered uh, conditional surrender of this type that we ended up taking before Nagasaki actually happened. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, um, yeah. And some it, of the bombing campaigns of conventional bombing campaigns happened after uh, we accepted Japan's surrender. So this is a defeated and surrendered enemy that yeah. was still getting their civilian population centers bombed. Yeah. Now there was a attempted coup against the emperor by the military that didn't want to surrender oh, wow. and that ultimately failed. Mm. Um, so it's it was an awful set of decisions that those people had to make. Yeah. And you think about the the madness that we had descended into, starting with the 1939 invasion by Hitler of his neighbors and the brutality throughout the war and the brutality conducted by Japan and the nature of that war was so awful that it became imaginable to think that the lesser of two evils would be incinerating a city. Right. Yeah. And this is a point Daniel Ellsberg makes in uh, his book, The Doomsday Machine, which is that the nuclear arms race and, and the logic of nuclear war kind of became set during World War II by this slippery slope justifying bombing population centers in, in cities, which initially, uh, I think I got this from humankind, um, different factions of the war agreed not to bomb civilian centers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that just right. eked away over, over time. Yeah. So I think the initially they sought to conduct this war in the most humanitarian way possible. And that slipped away from them pretty quickly to the, 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 the point where all sides were committing barbarous acts. Yeah. And I think that that mentality of total war we carried that with us into the Cold War yeah. as well. And it made possible the 
doomsday machine we really constructed after the events depicted in the film. And this is the thing that Robert Oppenheimer was most concerned about. I think that he's tormented by the civilian losses in Japan, but even more so by his inability to stop this great machine from rolling forward in the pursuit of the thermonuclear bomb and of these intercontinental missiles that can carry nuclear weapons and carry them there to target in 30 minutes in less time than we can really react and process. Yeah. So it was this future that he was trying to push back against in his years after the war. He wasn't the only one. There were many scientists and citizens who felt this World War II should be seen as an aberration and we needed to put on the brakes but there was also an incredible fear of the Soviet Union. And just a few years after the US used nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Soviet Union tests its first bomb. And it seems possible that these weapons will spread to everywhere on earth and that the US needs to get there first. So this process of a, a, an arms race that no one can hold back, I think that's captured too in the film. And yeah. I think a way, a way that's really compelling. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely want to touch on non-proliferation, hard word yes. to say, uh, that ends up happening after the war compared to what was expected. Um, but something I was glad to see included was this discussion of, of a hydrogen bomb, yeah. which would be a thousand times stronger than uh, the atomic bombs that were built at the Manhattan Project. And uh, my understanding is that I think every major scientist except for Edward Teller opposed the construction of the hydrogen bomb. Is that, is that right? No, I don't think that's true. Or sorry, yeah. involved with the Manhattan Project? Or? Right. So... In 1943, at the start of the Manhattan Project, Edward Teller is presenting this idea for a more powerful bomb. And he wants to work on this. Yeah. Uh, he wants to skip a step, essentially, and focus attention on the hydrogen thermonuclear bomb. And Oppenheimer, uh, who is something of a mentor to Teller, says, this is interesting why don't you go work on this? And that's depicted in the film where mm -hmm. Teller almost walks off the project. Oppenheimer says, no, you stay, you work on the super, as it was called, right? and design, run these calculations, see what you can do here. We're going to need a fission bomb in any case to trigger the high temperatures that are needed to fuse hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So even if you want to produce the super, we still need to build the, the fission bomb first. And he agrees to meet with Edward Teller for one hour a week, which is a lot of time for the director of this project. Right. And I think he was was generous with Teller, both with his, with his time and everything else, and um, ultimately views Teller's turning on him as a betrayal. And there's a, there's a scene in the film in which Kitty Oppenheimer will not shake the hand of Edward Teller. And that actually happened. And a lot of the scientific community turned its back on Teller after they felt that he betrayed Oppenheimer in this way. Yeah. But to be fair to Teller, he felt like the U.S. was in this inevitable arms race with the Soviet Union. And if the U.S. didn't build a super, the Soviets would. And this is the kind of um, arms race competition that drives a lot of really, really bad outcomes. Right. And, and yeah, the idea of needing a, a weapon that is that powerful, I mean, some people dispute the need for atomic weapons in the first place. Um, but to have something a thousand times stronger, yeah. uh, just, yeah, it can't really be justified. Right. Right. So the, the bomb that was dropped 
on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's more similar to the the types of incendiary bombing that was happening in the war. You could see why the military planners wouldn't see a bright line distinction um, between a bomb that destroys a city in a day versus one that destroys a city in a week or a month, Mm -hmm. right? The hydrogen bombs changed that because now you can have nuclear explosives of virtually any size, but even more importantly, you can miniaturize them Mm. and you can put the power of 30 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 Hiroshima's and put it on the tip of a missile and have that delivered in 25 minutes to a military target halfway around the world. Wow. And it's that development that fundamentally changes the nuclear age. Right. And and you just need, what, less fuel for yeah. the result, basically? You, know, you need less initial fuel to kick off the reaction, but yeah. then the reaction itself can be much larger. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I remember this coming up and in, in also the doomsday machine where, uh, yeah, just it horrified people who had worked on this. And I think to some extent had felt differently about what they had done after learning more information. Um, and... I guess one of the things that is a bit ambiguous in the film and I think in history as well is like whether Oppenheimer regretted his involvement in the Manhattan Project overall, um, but he does start speaking out against the development of the hydrogen bomb and speaks out against the arms race dynamic that is taking effect with the Soviet Union. Um, do you have a sense of, of like how he felt, all things considered, um, about his involvement and, and later work? Yeah, so there is writing and speeches and you can track his thoughts on this. After the Manhattan Project, according to his wife, Kitty, and her letters, he was incredibly depressed. Mm. And I think that he was depressed in part because of the use of the weapon against civilians and really learning more about that. But perhaps even more so, he can see where this path is going to take us, and he feels powerless to stop it. And he was very intuitive and well-informed, and he wasn't the only person who saw this. But the idea that this weapon would spread and would be in the arsenals of all major militaries and would be targeting U.S. citizens as well. And it's interesting what Nolan does in the film, because we don't see any Japanese victims of the bomb. And some people have uh, been upset that we don't see the Japanese victims. Right. What we see instead is Oppenheimer looking away from the results, from the, 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 the footage that's being shown to him. He can't look at it. And what he sees, he sees these visions of the very people in Los Alamos who are celebrating the detonation of the first bomb and presumably the end of the war. He sees their celebration turned into agony and he sees them as the victims of nuclear war. And I think this was very powerful from everyone in the Manhattan Project and in the broader U.S. military enterprise to understand that soon there would be weapons pointed at the United States. Mm. And the scientists all understood this. You see, uh, in the movie, uh, there's a scene where Truman and his advisor, Jimmy Burns, are basically discounting the idea that the Soviet Union will ever get a weapon. Yeah. The scientists understood that was nonsense and that anything the U.S. was capable of doing, the Soviets would too, espionage or not. 
because they weren't working with any frontier science. It was an engineering problem at that point. I think Oppenheimer said, we didn't actually do any important science at Los Alamos. We were just figuring out how to engineer these explosives using well-known properties of physics. And they were right. And that's why it's so surprising in some ways that the bomb hasn't spread anywhere because the science itself is not that hard. It is a massive engineering problem and one that the Manhattan Project has spent several years and billions of dollars of expenditure to produce enough of that fissile material to get the bomb. But um, it's not an especially hard problem from a scientific perspective. Right. I, I don't know if this is true, but I've seen it claimed that all the information required to make a nuclear weapon is available on the internet. Um, yeah. I don't know if I go that far, but there's a lot of information on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of smart people out there. And this is really 1940s technology. Yeah. Um, so there, there are certain tricks that you need to do to make a bomb, and it probably requires some really good um, machining and explosives understanding. But it's uh, it's not an unsolvable problem, given the, the huge range of scientific and engineering problems that people are able to solve in 2023. Right, right. Um, yeah, and... No, the uh, the film really is incredible. The auditorium scene in particular, I think, stood out to me. And I was also expecting certain shots, you know, of the bombs being used on Japan, of this the buildings being destroyed by in, in, in the tests. Um, but I think Nolan probably deliberately is just not showing you anything you've seen before and highlighting things that, yeah, have never really... Or maybe you can find footage of a particular thing, but... Um, it just surprises you. And, and yeah. I think it, he was consciously yeah, filling in gaps that we might have. Yeah. There, there is one omission that people are rightfully concerned about, which is that it doesn't portray any of the effects of the first nuclear test on the local populations. Mm. So New Mexico is sparsely populated, but it's not uninhabited. And right. if you go out 150 miles from that test site, there are about half a million people who live there. And the fallout from that initial nuclear test fell upon those regions. And there are people today who suffer health consequences from that initial Trinity test. So in some ways, the first victims of nuclear use were Americans. Yeah. And that story should be told. And the people of New Mexico haven't received compensation for that. There's work in the Senate right now to to get that underway. But it's a, it's long overdue. Wow. And were any of the people working on the project who were witnessing the, the tests, were they affected as well or were they protected by sandbags or whatever? They were not protected. And I think they were probably affected. I know that there were some notable radiation deaths after the Trinity test. Mm. I don't know what can be tracked directly to the Trinity test because, yeah. of course, we didn't stop. They didn't stop building these weapons and testing them. And so it's hard to isolate, I think. Yeah. The direct impact. Yeah. And, and we subsequently tested atomic weapons in uh, the Pacific at the mm -hmm. Bikini Atolls, yeah. I believe. Um, yeah. And I believe there were also health consequences there. Absolutely. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who continue to suffer both from the tests in the Pacific as well as at the Nevada test site. And I should mention, it's not just the US. Um, the Soviet Union tested weapons in Kazakhstan and the people in Kazakhstan experienced terrible consequences from that. I went to Semipalatinsk, which is the Soviet test site there. And there are people there who suffered tremendously from that. Um, the, the British tested tests in Australia in this supposedly uninhabited place that had Aboriginal people who 
suffered from that. So right. um, France tested in Algeria, right? So this legacy of nuclear testing is a dark one. And it's back to a time when countries were willing to do whatever it took to ensure their national security. And um, there's a lot of racism involved in those decisions as well. Yeah. Um, fortunately, we are no longer nuclear testing. Um, and the, the tests moved underground where there are far fewer human consequences. There's an organization now that monitors to determine whether any country is testing. And North Korea is the only country that has tested a nuclear weapon in recent years. And hopefully that stays in our past, although the future is deeply uncertain and we may be headed for a new nuclear arms race. We could talk about that later if you want. Yeah, absolutely. The film is, is well worth watching. And uh I yeah, was surprised to see it was made the way it was made, uh, given how often we like paint over um, American history and, and make this U.S. out to be less of a complicated yeah. <laughs> actor than it yeah. really is. There's this incredible moment at the end of the film where Oppenheimer is talking to Einstein. And I believe this conversation is fabricated, but I think it captures what Oppenheimer probably felt at the time. Yeah. And he's speculating. They, they had initially discovered that there was a small chance that the first nuclear test could ignite the atmosphere right. and end life on Earth. They later went, went back and did the calculations and found out that the probability was near zero, which in physicist talk is zero, right? Yeah. But he's, he's talking with Einstein and he said, you know, when we initially did those calculations, we thought we might start a chain reaction that would end the world. I believe we may have. And... There's this sense that even if the atmosphere didn't explode, that we started this chain of events that would lead inevitably towards the destruction of humanity through the use of this powerful new technology. Yeah. And what is the role of a scientist in society? What is the role of leaders in society to keep us from going down those paths? I think that's what this film is ultimately about. And it's a film that's really relevant if you care about nuclear weapons, but also if you care about artificial intelligence and biotechnology. All of those themes are there. And we need leaders and scientists to speak up and to take us off the course of these competitions, which are going to lead us down a very dark path. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, yeah. No, Toby Ord in, in The Precipice uh, argues that the Trinity test was the first era, uh, the entering of an era of existential risk for humanity um, because of this idea that it could ignite the atmosphere, killing everybody. And even if it ended up not coming to pass and the probabilities were very low, it was still a risk, right? Like where yeah. there's a conceivable path towards yeah. the extinct, extinction of all life on, on Earth, um, which, yeah, uh, is a pretty terrifying concept. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I want to move from the, from the discussion of the film into nuclear security and nuclear weapons more, more broadly. Um, and yeah, you mentioned that we don't test nuclear weapons anymore. There's the nuclear test ban treaty. Uh, there's the non-proliferation treaty um, and, and various uh, international agreements regulating the use of nuclear weapons. But this was not a foregone conclusion that we would end up right. in this world, right? Uh, you've discussed and, and I've read elsewhere that it was just taken as inevitable that many, many countries would develop nuclear weapons um, and the world would just be living in the shadow of these weapons, not just from the United States and, and the Soviet Union, but from uh, 
yeah, p- possibly dozens of countries. Yeah. Why did that not end up happening? Yeah, you could see why in 1945 and especially in 1949, why you might think these things would spread anywhere. Soviet Union has just tested a weapon far ahead of the initial schedule that people thought it would. And there are, in the 1960s, dozens of countries that have programs of one degree or another to achieve nuclear weapons. And countries we don't think about typically as being uh, as seeking nuclear weapons. You know, you have Sweden and Romania and Taiwan and South Korea. And lots of countries are exploring their options when it comes to, to nuclear weapons. And I think what happens, are, there are a couple changes that happen that, that rein this in. First, I think there's an understanding among the U.S. and the Soviet Union that the spread of these weapons will be really bad for them. And so they lean on their allies and they present security assurances to these countries in order to end their nuclear weapons programs. Mm. And so this is part of the, the NATO alliance is to avoid the spread of nuclear weapons. That's one of the, the goals of it by including the NATO states under a nuclear umbrella. And you could say the same thing about some of the Warsaw Pact arrangements, right? Now, this doesn't stop countries like China from getting nuclear weapons. You have uh, UK, France, China all get nuclear weapons. Israel gets nuclear weapons. So there's still this fear that they're going to spread. And India is the big country that a lot of people are concerned about because it's not allied with either the Soviet Union or the United States. And so they devised this system under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in which the existing nuclear weapon states are essentially grandfathered in to allow to maintain their nuclear weapons for the future. And every other state that hasn't tested nuclear weapons yet um, is expected to sign this treaty. And in return, they will receive the benefits of peaceful nuclear uses of nuclear energy. Um, And this will slow down and and the arms race. So these negotiations begin in the early 1960s and culminate in 1968 with this nuclear non-proliferation treaty that you've mentioned. And it is one of the most widely ratified and effective treaties in history. It's almost universal. And very few countries that have signed the treaty have gone back. um, And there are verification provisions in place through the International Atomic Energy Agency to ensure that nuclear weapons, that, that's to ensure that nuclear activity remains peaceful in use and doesn't mm-hmm. result in a weapons program. So I, I don't know, I, I shared with you this piece in Asterisk that yeah. I had read that, that written that, that, that tracks this history. And on the issue of nuclear non-proliferation, that is the horizontal proliferation, the spread of nuclear weapons to new countries, I think... The world's track record is pretty pretty good, all things considered. You know, you only have nine countries who have these weapons. It didn't spread everywhere. And we haven't used these weapons again since 1945. There's been no detonations in war. And if you were to have told someone in the 1940s or 1950s that this is the outcome, uh, 80 years after the advent of the nuclear age, it's a pretty promising outcome. Yeah. The twist is that we did not succeed in preventing what they call vertical proliferation. That is a vast increase in the number of weapons in the hands of a few countries. 
So today there are about 12,000 nuclear weapons, wow. most of them many, many times more powerful than the weapon that was used in Hiroshima. And at the height of the Cold War, there were 60,000. So this is the system that we designed was based on assured destruction. And it was terrifying. Yeah, We all lived under that shadow. And we still live under it today, even though there are far fewer weapons. The plans are still on the books. We're in the middle of fighting a war in Ukraine. Ukraine is fighting Russia, a nuclear armed state. NATO is arming and supporting Ukraine in that war. And so we have this conventional war in a nuclear shadow. And Putin has issued multiple threats alluding to nuclear weapons and certain lines that ought not be crossed. So I think there's a very real risk of nuclear use in the next in the coming years. But beyond that, we are re-establishing this system that we had hoped would go away at the, after the end of the Cold War. And this time it's a three-way arms race in which you have US, Russia, and China all building up the capabilities of their nuclear arsenal. And China, which for many years had a small nuclear arsenal, recessed, less active, they're on, on pace to double or triple the size of that arsenal. And that will create a really frightening new dynamic. Yeah, wow. And something that is remarkable to me about uh, just nuclear weapons and, and how they spread is that some countries actually voluntarily gave them up after they developed them, like South Africa. Um, and this is just not something that I knew about and just feels like, oh no, the genie doesn't go back into the bottle. Right. Um, and how did that happen? Yeah, so there was a there was a change. The apartheid government left power and they wanted to come clean about their nuclear weapons program uh, in order to reintegrate with the international community. And they didn't want to leave the bomb to the successor government. Wow. And so they basically said, hey, we got these six bombs over here. We've got the, all this fissile uranium and we would like to join the NPT as a non-nuclear weapon state and uh, we'll give this stuff up. It's a pretty unique case. There, right. aren't, there aren't a lot of examples of this. You do have some of the Soviet states that had Soviet weapons on their soil. And uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, Kazakhstan, Belarus, and Ukraine give up the weapons that were on their territory. Whether they actually had an opportunity to keep those weapons is much debated. Mm. There's a new book out about this, about the Ukrainian decision to give up its nuclear weapon. I haven't read it yet, but it's getting very good reviews uh, by uh, Marianne Buderin. And she is Ukrainian and tracks all the primary source material to look at that specific decision. But as you say, it's pretty hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Um, there are examples of countries deciding we no longer need these weapons playing such a, la a large role in, in, in our society and in our economy. And um, I think there are limits to what nuclear deterrence gets you. People realize that when they start looking at the problem hard. And, one, and in some ways, it makes you more vulnerable. Um, so, How would that be the case? Well, if you have nuclear weapons and you're targeting them at other countries, um, it's, it's fair game that they would target you back. Right. right? 
And the U.S. and other countries have said that we will not target non-nuclear weapon states with our nuclear arsenal. Mm. It's called a negative security assurance. Uh, and it was reiterated uh, during the Obama years. And some version of it is still on the books now. So um, I think this is very important to say that you know, nuclear weapons are for deterring other nuclear weapons. And if you can limit their use to those circumstances, you can work towards a world in which we have much less risk of nuclear use. Right. And deterrence, yeah, does seem to be the only ethical justification for, for these weapons in, in my head. Um, but if you look at our, our nuclear arsenal, we have a lot of ICBMs, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles pointed mostly at Russia, some at China probably. Um, and these are aggressor weapons. These are meant for a first strike is my understanding. Um, they and, can be. or like, they, it, Yeah, right. But they would be the first ones targeted as well by an enemy if, if they launch a nuclear attack against us. And I've seen the argument that if you have nuclear submarines with a sufficient number of weapons to destroy the top however many cities of your opponent uh, in the events that they attack you, this is a su- sufficient deterrent to uh, you know that country. And you don't need uh, bombers. You don't need land-based missiles. Right. Uh, what do you think of that argument? Well, I think it's pretty compelling. If you look at a single Ohio-class U.S. nuclear submarine, they can be loaded up with missiles carrying up to 70 warheads, each of which would be something like 30 times more powerful than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. So a single nuclear submarine at sea is enough to deter just about any circumstance you could imagine. What country would be willing to lose that many cities or that many military targets for the course of achieving what? And these submarines move silently. They can hide. They're very, very difficult to track. And so they create this very secure second strike capability, which should deter just about any threat out there. So I think a world in which the U.S. and other countries have far fewer weapons, you'd still get the benefits of deterrence as they are. Uh, There would still be a chilling effect that would keep leaders from initiating wars of aggression and great power war, but at far fewer numbers of nuclear weapons. And if anything went wrong, the consequences wouldn't be nearly so bad. Right. They would be awful. I don't get me wrong. They would be still the worst day in worst day in human history. Right. But we wouldn't we wouldn't blow up the world. Yeah. Yeah. No, I this point was made to me recently and I thought it was pretty profound. And it, it's just monstrous in, in my head to have weapons that you would consider using first. Um, and one of the policies that I've seen Daniel Ellsberg recommend and others recommend is a, a pledge to do no first use, which the United States, to my understanding, has not agreed to. Um, I don't know what other countries have, have said on this, but it just seems unjustifiable to, mm-hmm. to initiate war with these weapons, given what it would mean. Um, yeah. And I'm curious what you think of a a no first use policy and and, and how likely something like that is. So some countries do have a no first use policy. China is one of them. Mm. The U.S. does not believe in that policy because it's just a declaratory policy and nobody knows whether it's backed up by operations. And China is extremely opaque in terms of what they say about their nuclear arsenal. 
Um, the U.S. has not adopted a no first use, and instead they've settled for this language of um, a fundamental purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter other nuclear weapons. One of the big reasons is because of U.S. allies who fear that by signaling U.S. will never use nuclear weapons first, it may invite aggression below that nuclear threshold, mm. especially by China, but also by Russia, by North Korea. So U.S. allies have said, hey, don't say no first use. Right. At least some of them have. The, the, the military leaders and the security establishment in those countries have said that. And the administration said, okay, we won't rock the boat. Um, even though by all accounts, President Biden himself would prefer a no first use posture. Um, that, that's the arrangement that was settled on in the US nuclear posture review, which is a big multi, multi-agency process. Um, I don't think the... U.S. plans to use nuclear weapons first, but those plans are on the book. So even as I say that, I suppose the U.S. Is, there are plans, but right. it's not. It's certainly not Plan A. Yeah, and and this is also something that that's been interesting to me is that uh, our allies have in at times really pressured the United States to build up their nuclear weapons, and and one of the reasons for the buildup during the first phase of the Cold War, uh, my understanding is is that. Uh, Western Europe feared a Soviet land invasion, and the United States did not have the the ground forces to prevent that from happening. And so nuclear weapons were seen as like a way of deterring that. Is that right? That's right. And they were initially deployed in large numbers in Europe in order to prevent and deter uh, Soviet aggression. Um, whether that aggression would have happened absent those deployments, we'll never know. That's right. sort of historical speculation. But um, today, U.S. allies play a role in asking for more nuclear assurances. And this is very much a live issue, especially after the war in Ukraine. Um, you can expect that some U.S. allies in Poland, for example, will want more assurances um, about yeah. about nuclear, nuclear use. Yeah, I, I remember uh, during the first phase of the war in Ukraine, Zelensky was calling for the United States to, I think, initiate a no-fly zone um, or some, something like that, which seems, in my view, to, to be pretty likely to escalate to a shooting yeah. war. And Zelensky was being hailed as a, a hero by, yeah. by many people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I should be upfront and say I, I didn't, I have not followed this war closely, mm -hmm. but I was just like, isn't this guy asking for a thing that right. seems pretty likely to lead to just yeah. nuclear war between I mean, when you say no fly zone it <laughs> yeah. sounds kind of sanitary and like well that's sensible no fly zone but right. what it actually means is that you're shooting down russian planes right you're hitting russian radar installations and anti-aircraft missiles it's a war and so it would have meant that and i think people realize that pretty quickly um i think you, you know it if you want to take a charitable view towards what Zelensky is asking for, he was asking for a maximalist position in order to get some support. Yeah. But, um, wow. If, if we had ever embraced a no-fly zone in Russia, that's World War III. Right. And, and yeah, this is this kind of depressing, um, reality where it kind of points you the logic of like nuclear deterrence or, the, the fear of escalation points you towards just kind of rolling over and taking it. <laughs> and this feels like very unsatisfying when a aggressor country invades um, a neighbor 
And, you know, I think there should be norms against this ha happening in yeah. the United States, obviously, is not really one to talk in <laughs> yeah. in this regard. But um, yeah, it, it still just seems very bad to yeah. do what like might scratch some need itch for justice or something. Right. Uh, you know, the the record of aggressor states conducting wars, it hasn't gone well for them since 1945. Right. Um, so there's you look at. Russia's war in Ukraine. This is a major miscalculation, and think they are achieving the opposite of what their initial goals were when they entered the war. And nuclear weapons are not buying them very much in that conflict. Just as nuclear weapons were not very helpful for the United States in Korea or Vietnam, and right. didn't fundamentally turn that war to a U.S. victory. Uh, U.S. nuclear weapons were useless in Iraq and Afghanistan um, wars that the U.S. spent so much blood and treasure to achieve virtually nothing. So um, I think the benefits of these weapons can be vastly overrated. Yeah. I think they do have some benefit in constraining great power aggression. Um, but as we know, the Cold War wasn't really a cold war. It was a hot war for many countries on the periphery of the, the great power structure right. and tremendous personal and humanitarian losses there. So um, there's this narrative that nuclear weapons kept the peace since 1945. I mean, maybe that's true if you're an American who doesn't have someone enlisted in the military in your family, but we haven't been at peace. Uh, there have been plenty of wars. And if you live in Vietnam or Cambodia or China or Iraq or Afghanistan or Libya, there are plenty of people suffering from war. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. And and this is sort of the most interesting thing to me about these weapons is whether they actually did prevent a full scale conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States or, or to what extent they actually made the Cold War more likely. Um, and yeah, I, I'm really interested in if you have any thoughts on like, was the Cold War just avo an avoidable outcome? Um, and uh, there's some alternate histories where FDR lives um, well into his fourth term or Henry Wallace is his vice mm -hmm. president again and, and becomes president instead of Truman. Um, and I think we now look at like the Cold War as this inevitable outcome. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that was actually true at the time. And, and I'm curious if, if you have any thoughts on like what yeah. could have been done differently. So I'm not a historian of this period and um, I haven't given a lot of thought to this question, but it seems like there was this inevitable confrontation between the Soviet Union and the United States and the Western democracies. And there was no way to avoid conflict, tension, and competition. But the exact nature by which that competition bore itself out, I think there are probably lots of historical possibilities. Things could have been quite different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Daniel Ellsberg on the 80,000 Hours podcast talked about how the United States was terrified of the Soviet Union and thought they were definitely planning to take over the world. Mm -hmm. And Ellsberg's claim from memory was they were just terrified of being invaded again <laughs> and fighting yeah. uh, Germany again. And they just lost something like 25 million people yeah. um, in World War II. They'd lost uh, millions of people in the First World War. And uh, their, you know, invasion and, and uh than keeping of territory in Eastern Europe and, and part of Germany was 
kind of this fearful defensive posture rather mm-hmm. than like a sign of their true intentions, which was yeah, global domination. Right. So Stalin was a monstrous leader and the yeah. Soviet Union in some ways was this dystopian society, but that doesn't mean that they were intent on conquering the entire world by force. And I think there's a lot of nuance within that that range of interpretations. And um, I think they had a view that the world would eventually come around to their position and they just needed to avoid being invaded or collapsing um, yeah. as well. So I think there's different ways to interpret that. Yeah. And I'm not super sure of this, but I, I have this belief or understanding that um, the Soviets actually advocated against some local communist parties in various countries from doing revolutions and um, were afraid of provoking the United States. And and uh, yeah, we're just like much less interested mm-hmm. in this kind of aggression. They were a little more risk averse yeah. than uh, they had been painted. Yeah. Right. Right. Which is like, again, understandable mm-hmm. given the the catastrophic losses that they, they faced in, mm-hmm. in the Second World War. Yeah. Um, and they were projecting strength even when they had to acknowledge at some level their weakness. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And, and yeah, nuclear weapons, yeah, did not prevent uh, millions from being killed in Vietnam and Korea. And um, I don't know what the numbers were in Afghanistan in, in the 80s, but these various proxy wars yeah. between, in some cases, the Soviets, uh, in some cases, uh, China and, and the United mm-hmm. States. Um, yeah, I, I'm also really interested in talking about um, how close we were to actually eliminating nuclear weapons, at least between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, there's this Reykjavik conference between Gorbachev yeah, and Reagan. an interesting one. Uh, Reagan. And yeah, I, I guess... I, I grew up with this idea that these were weapons that we were just going to live with and there was just no way mm-hmm. out. And uh, any moments we could just all die by nuclear firestorm. And and I say we, um, I think I also grew up thinking that they would kill maybe more people than they actually would. But living in the Northeast mostly mm-hmm. and now living in, in New York, you know, it is a real we. <laughs> yeah regarding myself and the people I live with and a lot of my closest friends. Um, but uh, yeah, this this event was just so shocking to me that we were just this close. And I'm curious if you could uh, describe that. Yeah. So it, it takes place in October 11th to 12th, 1986. And this is a time when Gorbachev has just recently come to office and he's a new type of man. And he meets with Reagan for the first time in Geneva, um, about six months before the Reykjavik conference. And then he goes back and he gives a speech in the Soviet Union calling for perestroika and glasnost. And he's really seeking an arms treaty that can help relax international tensions and also reduce the financial burdens of the military industrial complex. Because he he goes before the Politburo in a closed session and he says that without cuts, we are going to be pulled into an arms race that's beyond our capabilities. So Gorbachev wants to reduce these weapons and he sees Reagan as someone that maybe he can deal with here. So uh, they schedule this meeting in Reykjavik to talk about this. And for the Geneva meeting, Reagan had been incredibly prepared. He had read over 100 pages of single space notes from the CIA and the State Department, gets multiple briefings on it. Interestingly, for Reykjavik, he comes in and he's kind of winging it. Mm. And so they don't have any specific proposals for Reykjavik, but Gorbachev does. So they arrive there at this Hofti house, which is this small house just outside of Reykjavik. Um, I actually went there for a conference that was looking at the Reykjavik 
it was on the, the anniversary of the Reykjavik summit. And it's so intimate a space. It doesn't feel like one of these big conference halls where heads of state usually meet. Mm-hmm. They were just a few feet from each other. There's actually one meeting and Reagan is meeting with advisors. And the only place they feel they can do that to avoid Soviet scrutiny is in the bathroom. <laughs> so his advisors are lined up in the shower and Reagan walks in and he sits on the toilet and he says, I'll take the throne. <laughs> so they have these discussions and the proposal that Gorbachev drops is this comprehensive proposal. Basically, they're saying we're willing to give up 50% of all medium, we want to eliminate on both sides, 50% of all medium range missiles in Europe. And he says, but if we just bring these to the negotiators, if we just go to Karpov and Kempelman, um, they're going to just spoon out the porridge we have eaten for years, mm. meaning they're going to take it to the technical people and make incremental steps. So his proposal is let's do something big and ambitious. And at first, Reagan reciprocates and says, okay, let's get rid of these. And they go from talks about having halving and eliminating all ballistic missiles and then they talk about, well, what about the bombers? And Reagan says, okay, let's include those two in this proposal. Now, at some point, Gorbachev says, well, let's cut the whole triad. And Schultz, who is the Secretary of State, says, okay, let's do it. And so they get together and they start talking about the specifics. But there's one point which is non-negotiable for both sides. And that is this ABM system, the anti-ballistic missile system, Star Wars system that's under development in the United States. And at this point, it's more a science project than an engineering project. They're still working out whether it's even possible. They're spending a lot of money on it, but they are not building interceptors or testing them in outer space. And Gorbachev says, okay, you need to get rid of this program. And Regis, I can't get rid of this program. I've told the American voters this is priority for us, and I, the right wing would have my head if I ever gave this up. And Gorbachev says, okay, well then limit it to the lab. Reagan goes back, he talks to his advisors. Ultimately, they decide that they cannot accept even this modified proposal to, to keep the ABM system, the ABM development in the lab. Um, Reagan says, you know, we're going to go develop this and then we'll share it with you. Gorbachev says, you're not even sharing with us agricultural techniques. You're not even sharing with us your your technology for drilling oil wells. Why do we think you're going to share this with us? Um, And it breaks down and Reagan says, well, I didn't think you would. I'm not convinced you really wanted a deal anyway. Wow. So Reykjavik ends as a failure. They're able to salvage something of it later with this intermediate range nuclear forces agreement, the INF Treaty. Uh, which limits intermediate forces, a very important step because these are especially useful. Uh, if short time of flight, they could be used to target leadership, et cetera. So reduces the temperature somewhat. And I think Gorbachev does come away somewhat heartened that he's found someone in Reagan that he can work with and that the U.S. is not intent on conducting a nuclear first strike on Soviet territory. So it's not a total failure. But it does raise this question of what might have been. Right. You know, this this one word in the declaration. I sometimes think we overstate these things because any proposal, even if agreed, then has to be go back, go back and be implemented. Right. So there are lots of ways that it could have failed along the path. And certainly going from the number of nuclear weapons they had 
down to zero would have been a very difficult path. But to signal that as the goal, even that alone in a public way would have um, been very encouraging, I think, and might have brought us to where we are faster. Right, right. And yes, so you you don't actually think that this would have led to an elimination of nuclear weapons between the US and the Soviets? I think it would have led, it's, it's hard to say. Right. Uh, you know, when you get down to the specifics, um, I think it would have led to fewer nuclear weapons in the Soviet Union and the US. I mean, at some point you would get down to low enough numbers where you'd have to start to worry about other nuclear weapon states. Mm. And um, that creates a whole other set of problems because the US and Russia are clearly not going to zero if other countries have them. Right. But um, it does seem to me a missed opportunity. Yeah. And it also seems hard. I've seen nuclear weapon uh, aspirants like North Korea or Iran just be like, well, why should we listen to you? Not only do you have nuclear weapons, speaking of the United States, uh, you're the only country that's ever actually used them yeah. on, on targets. Um, and there's a certain rhetorical power to this. Mm-hmm. And, and just going from thousands of weapons to, yeah. to nothing with your greatest adversary uh, would have a lot of moral weight behind it and, and yeah. getting other countries to do the same. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that this is mostly rhetoric. I think countries mostly make decisions about their national security needs based on their own assessment rather than on what other countries are doing. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a powerful rhetorical statement and um, the U.S. would be in much stronger standing internationally if uh, it didn't have the the history of nuclear use or the rhetoric around nuclear use that, that it does. Yeah. I, that's, that story just has st- stuck with me. Um, and it's, it's funny too, because I, I don't know, I haven't looked into this in great detail, but star Wars, um, it seems like people think this is not, would never have actually worked, uh, yeah. in, in retrospect. I don't know it's, if it's, it's possible you know, now. the, the missile defenses systems that they're building now are much more effective than anything that has been built before. Right. Um, that said, to every to every defense system, there's a countermeasure. And so if that countermeasure is just building up more missiles and more nuclear weapons, that's one thing. But there's also relatively cheap penetration aids that can be added. So it's always a cat and mouse game yeah. with these types of technologies. Yeah. Uh, we, certainly, we're spending a lot of money on it. Yeah. And it's in some ways locking in a large number of nuclear weapons because I think part of the drive for China's increase in its nuclear arsenal is the existence of these rapidly improving U.S. missile defense systems. Huh. Right. And yeah, this is something uh, the United States is, I believe, committed to modernizing uh, our nuclear arsenal yes. to the tune of something like $2 trillion maybe over yeah. 30 years. It depends on what you're including and how long a time frame you take, but it's a massive number. Yeah. And you think about how some of that money might be used elsewhere. Uh, I think some of the things that we're doing to modernize the arsenal make a lot of sense. Improving nuclear command and control, the reliability and security of these devices. If we're going to have them, they should be as safe as possible. And we should have the best information we can in order not to use them inadvertently. Right? Right. But the idea that we need to maintain this very large arsenal of all these different weapon types and actually perhaps increase it. That seems madness to me. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I just read this uh, excerpt about this Soviet anti-ballistic missile defense that had something like 68 um, interceptors and uh, the United States was targeting and it was believed that maybe each interceptor could take out one missile. So the United States was targeting it with like 69 missiles or something uh, or 69 warheads. And it turns out the interceptor was useless and it would have done nothing. Yeah. And so there's a lot of this that goes into the justification yeah. for for these massive, massive programs. Right. There's a lot there's there's a long history of threat inflation and worst case analysis. And you don't rise to be a military planner in China, Russia, or the US, and you don't keep your job if you're surprised by developments. So you always want to think about what's the worst case and how can we hedge against that. But if everybody's hedging against the worst case, you you never make progress. Right. And and I guess just in the abstract, these arms races are really wasteful um, yeah. and possibly destructive for, for all the parties involved. You know, they would all rather spend less money on fewer weapons, like in some naive economic right. sense. Yeah. But then there's specific, you know, units and, and or uh, branches of the military yeah. that want to spend more money on this right. because for them, it means more resources and more influence and, and the ability to be in the game when, when something's yeah. going down. I think that's why arms control is so important because it provides some parameters around the competition. And it allows, for example, the New START Treaty caps the number of deployed warheads at 1550 per side. And that means that there are no incentives to build more warheads than that, uh, which helps you predict where you want your nuclear enterprise to go and keeps these runaway arms races that leave you less safe and end up spending a lot of money on them. So yeah. those types of limits are very helpful in managing competition. Right now, because of the animosity and distrust between the US and Russia, that treaty is going away. And we're entering a world for the first time in 50 years where there are no binding treaties limiting the scope of this competition. That's really worrisome. Right. Yeah. This was one of the things that people feared with uh, the election of Trump and uh, his reelection was that he would not what ratify again. Or he would not the... extend the treaty for five years. Right. And the, the Russians bear the blame for this as well. So they have uh, illicitly tested certain missiles that violated the Interme Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Agreement, the INF Treaty, mm. um, which is now defunct. Um and they're playing games with New Start as well. So yeah. um, they have now said that they are suspending their reporting under a New Start. It's just not really a thing you can do. Hmm. Uh, and so the U.S. in return is suspending what they're sending the Russians. Um, these information exchanges. Um, so it's an it's a really unfortunate development. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it is depressing and seems hard to see a way out at, at, at this point. Um, but also things have been worse than this yeah, before. Yeah, they have been. Yeah. yeah. And so long as there is an active war in Ukraine, I don't think see things changing. But mm. if and when that conflict comes to an end, um, we need to reestablish this framework because it provides predictability and security for both sides. And you don't just negotiate with countries that you like and that you agree with. You have to negotiate with countries that you fundamentally don't see it eye to eye on on important issues. Um, you can't, you can't become safer unless you do that. So, yeah.
So one of the questions we might ask in Ukraine is, why hasn't Russia used nuclear weapons already? And at least one part of that has to be the nuclear taboo in this sense that they would not want to be the ones to cross this threshold and use nuclear weapons for the first time since 1945. And you have the Soviet Union, which made it a big propaganda point to point the finger at the United States as the only country who has used this, and that has persisted. And Russia does not want to be seen as the bad guy in this war. And for much of the world, they're sort of sitting on the fence with regard to this conflict. When we consume consuming media from the United States and the UK, for example, you might think that everyone is criticizing Russia, but about Three quarters of the world's population lives in a country that's basically on the fence, not taking sides. And the use of nuclear weapons in this conflict would, would change that, I think. So that nuclear taboo that we've worked to preserve for the past 80 years has real benefits for all of us. Yeah. And, and Putin has alluded to using nuclear weapons. Yes. Um, on several occasions, he's made these threats yeah. and subsequently kind of walked them back a little bit. But then he has his advisors go on the airwaves and talk about the destruction that's headed for the West right. if they continue. Right. And and the fear I've seen is that they start losing the war, Russia starts losing the war and to almost save face or something, like yeah. uses nuclear weapons. Yeah, it could be a way to halt things and press the pause button on it, yeah. on, on, on the conflict. Um, there may also be some specific tactical gains from using a nuclear versus a conventional weapon. Frankly, we don't know. Right. And Putin has every incentive to leave the door open and raise the the risk levels. Yeah. And my fear is that he sets some kind of red line that is then crossed either explicitly or inadvertently, and then he feels compelled to use these weapons to save face. Right. Right. Yeah. And the term uses a tactical nuclear weapon, which is, it seems like a bit yeah. of a misnomer to me yeah. because it implies it can be used in like a more limited way and right. it'll still have like a half mile burn radius. As it depends on the, it depends on the specific warhead, but yeah, yeah there are tactical weapons that are quite small, uh, much smaller than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then there are tactical weapons that are many times the size of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Wow. It really refers to the range rather than the size. Hmm. So. Uh, I think that Russia would have a lot of weapons in their arsenal that they could choose from in a lot of use scenarios. Um, it's a scary prospect. Yeah. And and something uh, I'd love to touch on actually is is what would happen in the event of a full-scale nuclear exchange between Russia and the United States? Um, yeah. Well, I, I hope we're not anywhere near that. Yeah. Uh, it seems like a very remote possibility. But given the number of warheads we have today, uh, I think there was an estimate done by Luisa Rodriguez at mm -hmm. Rethink Priorities that estimated between 30 and 70 million prompt deaths. But there would potentially be second, third order effects from the collapse of the electrical grid and the collapse of the medical infrastructure, um, the potential climatic effects. So you could, there are models in which enough soot is lofted into the upper atmosphere that it reduces solar radiation for many months or years yeah. and could trigger massive famine and basically cataclysm. Right. And and so th these numbers are horrifying, obviously. Um, 
But I, I think growing up, I just had this idea that the world would just actually end. Right. <laughs> like yeah. Everybody would be dead. Yeah. Um, and so there's this kind of bizarre, like, reassurance is too strong of a word, but uh, you see right. the, the estimates and it's like, oh, like, I mean, again, yeah. where we live, everyone would be dead, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the idea of nuclear winter or like actual human extinction. Yeah. Um, my understanding is this is not the latest thinking from from scientists on, on right. Like what I would think happen. we just don't know, right? To be honest, uh, some of the climate models support this theory of nuclear winter, but it all depends on the variables that you plug into the model, right? And fortunately, we don't have a lot of experimental data on this. Yeah. But um, I think this idea that it would kill every person alive is unlikely, yeah. and I think feeds into this doomerism that we have uh, in both climate and nuclear weapons and bio as well, perhaps, um, I think it disempowers us. Mm. And to think of these weapons as abstractions rather than as very real devices that will kill real people who have real lives and real stories and real futures. Um, I also think that crossing that threshold and having a massive use of nuclear weapons sends us down a really dark path that would leave us vulnerable to other catastrophic risks and other existential risks. Right. Um, it may lead people to embrace certain types of government or certain risky behaviors that could lead to the end of humanity. Right. And of course, AI being one of these, right? Yeah. So a, a risk factor. Um, yeah. yeah. I think it's best seen as a risk factor if you're thinking only in ter- existential terms. Right. Right. And and existential, an existential risk being one that leads to everyone dying or a permanent like trajectory changed basically the end of the species as, as we know mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah. And obviously, yeah, there are very good reasons to care about anything that could kill tens of millions of people um, and have all these second and third order consequences. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, I guess, a little bit heartening <laughs> just to, to learn that. Um, again, I wouldn't be around probably to, uh, to experience it that we do have some water and survival bars in our basement. Um, should, Good. should have come Good to that. first step. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this was something, you know, people in some of my circles were discussing um, yeah. when Ukraine heated up. It's just like, if you live in New York or London or, or some, you know, major city that would be targeted by these weapons, um, it might be a good idea to just like get out of town for a bit, which is just like, part of me is still just like, nah, come on. Yeah, I think we're a long way from that. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately. Um but yeah, I, I would love to talk about yeah some actual near misses in history. Um, and there's just a long list of these actually. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's two two that come to mind. Uh, there's a Stanislav Petrov um, mm-hmm. in 1983. Yeah. And then the Cuban Missile Crisis in mm-hmm. 1962, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, could you just tell those stories? Sure. So the Petrov incident happens around the time of these U.S. military exercises in the Soviet Union. We know from the declassified information is very concerned about a U.S. nuclear first strike. And the potential U.S. would strike first, take out Soviet leadership, and basically impose its will. And so during this time of heightened tensions, there is a colonel in the Soviet military who is working with a new system, a new early warning system, and sees on his screen indication of five missiles headed towards the Soviet Union. Now, the standard protocol in this case would be to relay that to his superiors who would have to make decision about whether to fire the weapons or not. Right. And in this case, Petrov 
being a technically minded person who's worked with this system, suspects that something's wrong. It just doesn't look right to him. Why would the U.S. launch five missiles? This is a new system, perhaps prone to bugginess. So he sits on the information and he doesn't relay it. And as a result, there is no risk of particular nuclear war from that incident. Right. Right. And so he's seen by some people as somebody like the man who saved the world. Yeah. And, and many yeah. people are just unaware of this. Yeah. I mean, it, he it's a pretty remarkable thing that he does. Probably goes too far to say that it saved the world because there may have been a couple other links in that chain right. between the use of nuclear weapons. And as we've discussed, the use of nuclear weapons may not mean the end of the world anyway. Right. But um, a pretty important figure and someone whose name we should know. Yeah, absolutely. And then 1962, I've, I've heard you say elsewhere that this is the time we were closest to nuclear exchange. Yeah, it, it's this crisis. As you know, the Soviet Union is deploying medium range missiles in Cuba, nuclear tipped that could reach the entire Eastern seaboard. And this is seen as an unacceptable provocation by the United States, uh, which has said, don't do this. Yeah. <laughs> Soviet Union goes ahead and do it, does it. And so Kennedy gets his advisors together and trying to figure out what to do. Um, the first option would be to invade Cuba. The second option, which he chooses, is to quarantine Cuba, essentially an embargo, to prevent more of the missiles from coming. Um, we know now that there were already nuclear weapons on the ground, not only the medium-range missiles that would be used on the strategic level, but some of these tactical nuclear weapons mm -hmm. we've discussed that would have been used against the invading U.S. forces. So if he had recommended the invasion, most likely we would have descended into nuclear war. Yeah. Wow. And everything comes to a head on October 27th, 1962. And this is probably the most dangerous day in history. And the day starts with Fidel Castro sending a telegram to Khrushchev, urging him to use these nuclear weapons against their common enemy. Wow. And the day ends with the Kennedy brothers making a deal with Khrushchev to remove the nuclear-tipped missiles from Turkey, these Jupiter missiles, as an exchange to end the crisis. Right. And, and the U.S. already had basically an equivalent yeah. force in Eastern Europe um, exactly. that the Soviets exactly. were kind of responding to. Right. Yeah. So they felt like this was just evening the score. Right. And they, you know, what else happens on October 27th? It's a series of near misses and provocations, any of which could have ended and you know, led to nuclear war. So right. the Soviets move the weapons closer to the site. They actually shoot down a U-2 surveillance plane in Cuba, which had been a red line that the U.S. had drawn. Um, there's another U-2 plane that wanders into Soviet airspace. Uh, the Pentagon finalizes the plans for its invasion of Cuba. And the local forces start firing on these low-flying surveillance aircraft, the, the, the Cuban forces. And in addition, there are these tactical nuclear weapons on the ground, and they move those closer to Guantanamo Bay yeah. for use there. So there's, uh, six or seven things happen on October 27th, and ultimately the crisis resolves itself, yeah. and we're able to successfully avoid this. And in part, because I think Khrushchev and Kennedy both felt fear 
and they acknowledge that fear. So the story that was told afterwards, of course, mm -hmm. is one of fierce brinksmanship in which Kennedy stared down Khrushchev, didn't blink, and Soviet Union had to remove the missiles. But that was the story that they told because they couldn't tell another story, which is that a secret deal had been struck. In fact, both Kennedy and Khrushchev blinked. Yeah. And it's good that they did. Right. It's like and, the only sane thing right. to do. Yeah. And, and there's also uh, this other story, which is like there was a Soviet submarine yeah. that was bombarded yeah, by death charges. Yeah, that also happened on October 27th. I even forgot that one. Right. Yeah. And this that, is the craziest one to me. Yeah. Can you tell so that story? They, yeah, there's one of these diesel-powered submarines that the Soviet Union has. It's accompanying the embargo, uh, the embargo breaking ships. And it's tipped with a nuclear armed torpedo special weapon that can be used under certain circumstances. But to be used, it has to be signed off by all the officers on the ship. In this case, there are three officers and the commander of the ship signs off. The uh, Soviet commissar, who also has to sign off, he signs off on the use. And it's only because the commandant of the Soviet fleet happens to be on that ship. He says, let's wait. Yeah. This decision is made under extraordinary duress. So they're underwater. They're being hit with these depth charges, like not actually hit with the depth charges. The depth charges are being dropped near them mm -hmm. in order to frighten them and force them to surface. The temperature in the submarine is like 130 degrees, and it's like being in a tin can that's just being hammered on. Um, and so they have to make a decision, and they, you know, they don't know, does, has the war already started? Are we going to be held to account for not using these weapons when we ought to have? Right. So, and a lot of people on the sh on the submarine thought war had begun. Yeah, yeah. And I think there were something like two other submarines that also had these torpedoes, but they didn't have the commandant on them. Uh -huh. And so had they made the same decision, there right. would have been nobody there to override. Right. Right. Yeah, I think you always need to be a little skeptical of these um, post facto accounts right. where someone says, yeah, we were going to do it, except that I did this. Mm -hmm. um, there, there could always be a little bit of posturing for the historical record. Right. Like like if they knew that the right. commandant would override them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe they were willing to authorize it only because they knew that they would be overridden. Right, right. A, a friend of mine uh, said this once where he was really interested in, in these near miss situations and like becoming a person who could like avoid catastrophe by making it a crucial decision and being like the guy in the chair. But he was wondering if there was just always a guy in the chair. <laughs> it's just so unfathomable to actually yeah. use these things. Um, yeah. And it would just mean yeah. a, an irreparable change to right. the world and your life, even if yeah. you survive. Like yeah. so many people you know would just be obliterated yeah. in the process. And, and that is not, there's not really an analog yeah. um, for anything else that we do. It's true. I think we're irresistibly drawn to these human stories yeah. and these things that one individual does, whether it's Reagan or Gorbachev or Oppenheimer or Stanislav Petrov or Vasily Arkhipov, these guys are in the chair, as you say, and we focus on their decision-making. But beyond them, there is a whole system and we can change that system. And ultimately, we don't want anyone in that chair. Yeah. We don't want anyone faced under duress with making a decision that could cost tens of millions of lives. Right. How do we step back from the brink and avoid 
subjecting anyone to that choice because we are not well designed for making high stakes decisions under duress. Humans did not evolve to be able to make these calculations. It's, you can't even picture what a million people is. Right. Right. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, what would be your ideal policy agenda uh, if you controlled the United States decision making entirely on nuclear weapons? And then what kind of international agreements would you push for? And then like in practice, what do you think are the best yeah. steps forward? Right now, we're headed in the wrong direction as Russia continues to develop different aspects of its nuclear arsenal. They haven't exceeded the new start limits as far as we can tell, but they are showing off these new esoteric systems that they've developed. Um, similarly, China is by all accounts doubling or maybe even tripling the size of its nuclear arsenal. And the US is faced with a choice. Do we follow in that direction? Do we feel like we need more nuclear weapons in order to deter both a Russia and a China? Does our arsenal need to equal the size of Russia and China's arsenal combined? Well, if we make that decision, I don't think Russia is going to stand still and keep their arsenal fixed. And we will be headed towards a really costly and destructive arms race. So the question is, how do you get off this treadmill? And fundamentally, I think it comes down to understanding that we have nuclear sufficiency, that we have enough of a deterrent against any possible scenario. If that's the case, then we shouldn't build up our weapons and we can hold them. We can hold that option as a hedge uh, and as a way to prevent Russia from building up. We also need to initiate risk reduction talks. And that has political costs because we are in a conflict with Russia right now. Russia is at war with Ukraine and we're helping to arm Ukraine. And anything that any negotiations with Russia will be seen by certain people as a sign of weakness and capitulation to, to Russia's interests. I disagree. I think you need to add, you need to negotiate at all times with your adversaries. Doesn't mean you need to give away the shop, but you need to figure out an off-ramp to this conflict and an off-ramp to this arms race that uh, is not going to result in catastrophe. Right. Um, beyond that, I think we need to improve our nuclear command and control systems and our early warning systems so that we are absolutely sure of the information that's coming in and about the reliability of the people who are making that information. I think we've made some important steps in that direction, but there's still vulnerabilities to cyber attacks, et cetera. And we're facing a series of questions regarding artificial intelligence and what role should artificial intelligence have in nuclear decision-making. There are some people who are arguing that we should build AI into our early warning and decision advising systems. And there would certainly be some benefits to that, right? In terms of the speed at which information can be processed. I think it's incredibly risky to right. do that. And the prospect that humans, you know, there's, always, there's this desire to keep humans in the loop at all times. I think the military will try to preserve that. But even if humans are making the ultimate decision, what if they're making that decision based upon information and advice that's being provided by AI systems, then they will become dependent on those systems in a way that could be really dangerous. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And do you envision or desire a world ultimately where there are new nuclear weapons? 
I think that's what we should aspire to. I think that we're living now in a world where we and other countries are threatening to commit war crimes, essentially, through right. the use of nuclear weapons against military targets adjacent to civilian populations. Uh, we know that there would be millions dead if we executed those options, and they would primarily be innocent people. And that's not a world we should aspire to live in. The vast majority of countries in this world believe that the use of nuclear weapons and the possession of nuclear weapons contravenes international humanitarian law. And I think we want to head in a direction where there are very few, if any, nuclear weapons. But it's hard to do that now. In fact, we're going in the wrong direction. Right. And you can't go to zero from where we are now. So I'm in favor of a series of risk reduction dialogues between the nuclear possessor states, uh, a, a reiteration of the statement that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought, and a series of risk reduction measures where we make it less likely that these weapons will ever be used and eventually work towards their elimination. Yeah, sounds sounds pretty good. Um, We're a ways from that, but yeah. we have to live with this technology. Yeah. And this was what Oppen the movie Oppenheimer raised. Yeah, this 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 technology was born and it's with us. And even if we didn't build nuclear weapons, the capability to build nuclear weapons is in the world. Yeah, and we need to manage that for many decades and centuries to come. Now, does what does that arrangement look like? Well, we have some of the pieces in place, I think, uh, with our ability to verify the peaceful use of nuclear energy. But it's going to be a long process. Yeah. Um, well, before we close out, I'd like to hear uh, what people can do to get more involved in this, if they want to work on these issues, if they'd like to donate money or uh, get involved in activism. Um, yeah, any, any calls to action. Right now, nuclear weapons are not on the agenda. They're not a major political issue. Politicians don't think about them. Activists don't tend to work on them. And unless we can create some more political influence, we're likely to continue with the status quo. And so there are, there are groups that are trying to rebuild political power and influence around nuclear risk reduction and to recapture the arms con arms control and disarmament efforts of the 1980s, but they tend to be weak, fragmented, and underfunded. So we need some leaders to step up and take this as an issue that's as important as climate change or artificial intelligence as a threat to humanity and start building political constituencies that can shape policies in Washington Unfortunately, there's not much to affect what Russia and China are doing with their nuclear weapons. Yeah. And that's that's a big problem because a lot of what Washington's doing now is reactive rather than um, proactive. So that's on the politics side. I think there is a need for people who work to understand this new nuclear risk landscape that we live in mm -hmm. and to communicate that to, to leaders. There's a need for journalists who write about this issue in a highly informed way. You know, we need more planning and forecasting exercises to improve escalation management in the context of technological change. We need more and better case studies and analysis to learn from these nuclear close calls uh, and to understand 
how we can design decision-making systems that are more consistent with what we know now about human psychology and the science of decision-making. Hmm. Um, I think we need to reduce vulnerabilities in nuclear command and control and early warning architecture. And we need a new set of dialogues on risk reduction between experts and officials in the United States, Russia, and China. And as I said, it's hard to have these dialogues now. They come with some political cost. So we need people who are willing to stand up for dialogue with adversaries. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to build political opposition to developing and deploying the highest risk nuclear weapon systems. So one of these, for example, is the sea-launched cruise missile, which is a nuclear-tipped cruise missile that has very short time of flight, but also has ambiguity, both in terms of what targets it's going to strike and whether it's carrying a conventional or nuclear payload. There's a desire by some in Congress to redeploy this system. And that's risky because it creates, it, it, it increases the risk of inadvertent nuclear war. Right. Because you don't know what's on You don't on know what's on it. Yeah. You don't know where it's going. Right. And so this fuels the fear in both Beijing and Moscow of a sneaky nuclear first strike on leadership targets. Right. Um, and beyond that, I think we should continue to work to shift attitudes towards nuclear weapons. Um, so long as these are just seen as a necessary evil that we must all accept, we're going to continue with this status quo. I think this nuclear taboo uh, against the use of nuclear weapons is something we all should work to preserve and to emphasize. And there is a movement of people internationally who are emphasizing that any use of these weapons would be against international humanitarian law and fundamentally inconsistent with our values. And we need to amplify those voices. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a shame that the anti-nuclear weapons movement was so powerful in the 80s and it's, yeah. I was not alive yet, but yeah. uh, you hear about people getting arrested, chaining themselves to, yeah. to you know, block roadways yeah. or uh, railways to prevent you know nu nuclear weapons yeah. from being deployed um this the set of rallies in central park was the largest ever in american history there were a million people out wow arguing against the arms race yeah. and towards a saner set of nuclear policies yeah that's evaporated now and so too has the funding and the mind share for this issue very few people think about nuclear weapons um, and philanthropists have largely abandoned this field. Right. So there's maybe some 20 or $30 million in, in philanthropic funding globally for all of these efforts. Wow. Um, so, you know, it's like maybe a, a compare that to say a billion dollars uh, uh, on climate change. Right. And philanthropy, climate, climate change philanthropy, not to mention, um, you know, people giving to their alma mater or to, uh, rich universities and museums hospitals and, and museums yeah. and everything else. Yeah, so. right. In the, in the last few years, uh, the, the biggest funders and uh, philanthropists in this space have just withdrawn by and large. About, yeah, the MacArthur Foundation is the big one. Yeah, um, And they are nearing the end of their investments in this space, which is a sad development. Yeah. And so long you philanthropy, where I uh, once worked as well, um, was is it's stepped in to fill this gap and you're working with them now yeah. um and they've launched a new fund uh on nuclear security 
uh, with giving what we can. Um, can you just speak to like what that fund is, is working on? Yeah. So we will take funds and allocate them towards what we see as the highest impact opportunities to reduce the risk of nuclear war and to move us towards a safer world. We have a number of opportunities we've identified. We now just need to raise the money. And the nice thing about contributing to a fund like this is that all our overhead is paid for. So we have some generous individual supporters who provide our office space and salaries so we can go out and research opportunities. So 100% of the funds contributed to this nuclear weapons policy fund go directly towards the beneficiaries. That would be researchers, scientists, activists, academics, on the ground trying to make a difference. Cool. That's great. We'll, we'll have a link for that in the show notes. Thank you. Uh, Carl, any other thoughts? No, just um, great to talk to you today and um, keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Carl. I wanted to end with a few corrections and footnotes, so here goes. As Carl points out at the time, what I said about the Manhattan Project scientists almost universally opposing the development of the hydrogen bomb was not quite right. I misremembered this story from Daniel Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine, which starts at page 289. In 1949, the Soviets successfully tested an atomic bomb. By then, Edward Teller had been unsuccessfully working on a hydrogen, quote, super bomb for seven years. He used the Soviet test to promote a crash program to develop the H-bomb to regain, quote, superiority over the Soviets. Also in 1949, the General Advisory Committee of the Atomic Energy Commission, chaired by Oppenheimer, was asked to consider Teller's proposal. Its members unanimously rejected a crash program in the strongest terms. And quoting from the committee report, We all hope that by one means or another, the development of these weapons can be avoided. End quote. Everyone on the committee agreed that the H-bomb was unnecessary as a deterrent, even if the Soviets developed it given America's large stock of atomic bombs. They were split on whether the United States should unilaterally commit to not develop the weapon or only commit conditional on the Soviets doing the same. The majority, who supported an unconditional commitment to not develop the H-bomb, this included Oppenheimer, they wrote, quote, We base our recommendation on our belief that the extreme dangers to mankind inherent in the proposal wholly outweigh any military advantage that could come from this development. Let it be clearly realized that this is a super weapon. It is in a totally different category from an atomic bomb. The reason for developing such super bombs would be to have the capacity to devastate a vast area with a single bomb. Its use would involve a decision to slaughter a vast number of civilians. We are alarmed as to the possible global effects of the radioactivity generated by the explosion of a few super bombs of conceivable magnitude. If super bombs will work at all, there is no inherent limit in the destructive power that may be attained with them. Therefore, a super bomb might become a weapon of genocide, end quote. And the minority, written by Enrico Fermi and I.I. Robbie, two Manhattan Project scientists, wanted a conditional commitment against developing the H-bomb, but they spoke out in even stronger terms, writing, quote, By its very nature, it cannot be confined to a military objective, but becomes a weapon which in practical effect is almost one of genocide, end quote. And, quote, The fact that no limits exists to the destructiveness of the weapon makes its very existence and the knowledge of its construction a danger to humanity as a whole. It is necessarily an evil thing considered in any light, end quote. And Ellsberg writes that, quote, No other secret proposal before the U.S. government has ever, to my knowledge, been condemned by insiders in such terms, end quote. The committee was ultimately overruled by Secretary of State Dean Acheson, AEC Commissioner Louis Strauss, 
and Democratic Congressional Committee leadership. Teller got his wish, and President Truman announced that the U.S. was pursuing the hydrogen bomb. As Ellsberg puts it, The image of nuclear war, from the familiar pictures of the devastation of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, are grotesquely misleading. Those pictures show us only what happens to humans in buildings when they are hit by what is now just a detonating cap for a modern nuclear weapon, end quote. And I want to close out the episode by finishing with a quote from Oppenheimer in November 1945, just three months after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He gave this speech at the University of Pennsylvania. The pattern of the use of atomic weapons was set at Hiroshima. They are weapons of aggression, of surprise, and of terror. If they are ever used again, it may well be by the thousands, or perhaps by the tens of thousands. Their method of delivery may well be different and may reflect new possibilities of interception and new efforts to outwit them. And the strategy of their use may well be different than it was against an essentially defeated enemy. But it is a weapon for aggressors, and the elements of surprise and of terror are as intrinsic to it as are the fissionable nuclei. This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoy this show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. This helps new people find the show and validates my self-worth. If you don't enjoy the show, you can keep your thoughts to yourself or email me at tgarrisonlovely at gmail.com. As usual, podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. Music is by me. And production is by Jason from audiolifts.co.